Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is George Manchero, co-founder and CEO of Bespoke Financial. Thank you very much for joining me today, George. Thanks for having me, David. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. George, I always like to start by getting to know a little bit about the person. Uh, first of all, I want to know, how did you find yourself in the cannabis industry? Yeah, I mean, I guess to explain that, I'd have to talk about my background before Bespoke. Um, I'd say I, I came from a very traditional finance background. I worked at investment banks, asset management funds, um, always focused on credit and lending. And so, you know, I moved from New York to LA in 2013. Back then, it was only medicinal sales. When 2018 came around and adult use sales were legalized, I just saw this as a very compelling opportunity, quite honestly. I believe in the product. I believe in the end of its prohibition. I think from a societal standpoint, those are two massive improvements versus the old policy. But also, you know, looking at the lay of the land, you know, I I knew lending, it was non-existent in the space. It's still not available to a scale that's, you know, tapping a broad section of the market. And so it seemed like a natural fit. And, you know, it just happened to be that at that time, I was ready to challenge myself a little bit more career-wise. So, you know, it was, it was a mix of a bunch of different factors, I'd say. Do you have a personal connection to the plants? And also, how did you get into the lending game? Yeah, so, I mean, with the plant itself, you know, I really only started <clears throat> using cannabis uh, when I was 25. It just wasn't something that was in my repertoire before then. Um I found that I respond very well to it. So, you know, I I am of the mindset that I don't think this is a plant or a product that's for everyone, but I do think a significantly larger section of society could benefit in some way, shape or form from cannabis being more broadly available and cannabis derived products being more broadly available. So, you know, yeah, I would say that that would be my relationship to the plant outside of work right now. In terms of lending, you know, I mean, it initially started because of my career, um, you know, in finance after the financial crisis in 08, 09, banks retreated from financing a lot of industries that they were active in before. And in that vacuum, into that vacuum, institutional capital stepped in. And, you know, that was part of the focus that I had at Guggenheim, which is managing structured credit investments and portfolios. And so, you know, it was, it was, very educational from the standpoint that cannabis has a lot of parallels. Um, you know, there's no bank lending to speak of. There's very little debt financing that's available. And so it really is an opportunity to one, participate in the growth of an industry right at its nascent stage, but also introduce a very valuable and necessary tool for the industry to continue growing. What was the founding of Bespoke like? Uh, busy, but you know, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, coming from a traditional finance background, I had always, you know, looked at it from a credit fund and underwriting perspective. Um, my two other co-founders, Ben and Pablo, who co-founded produce pay, which is another FinTech that provides financing to farmers and distributors of perishable produce. 
you know, they were the ones that really opened my eyes to how technology could really help scale the business. And one thing that has proven out over the past couple of years, especially on bespoke side, has been that, you know, there is somewhat of an advantage to this industry being built from the ground up today in the fact that you can leverage modern technological solutions to make things more efficient and easy, especially given the regulatory landscape making everyone's life more difficult. And so at Bespoke, you know, we've definitely leaned into technology just because, you know, growing an industry is challenging enough. And there are a lot of advantages where we could leapfrog forward. And I think it, you know, it behooves the industry to do that. What is fintech and how does Bespoke use it specifically to benefit the cannabis industry? Sure. So, you know, fintechs are generally a broad umbrella. There are a variety of different companies. So you can think of consumer buy now, pay later, the firms and the Klarna's of the world. You can think about lending, even, you know, the fintech 1.0 of the SoFi's and the lending clubs, cabbage, you name it. It's really just the making access to financial services and or capital just frictionless and easier and more broadly available through the use of technology, I'd say is like probably the most basic definition you could have. Um, For us, we've used it as a way to really, you know, achieve the same goals when it comes to the cannabis industry. It's, you know, when you go apply for a loan, it can be onerous. You may have to pull materials, financial statements, um, all kinds of, you know, assignments that you have just from an information gathering standpoint. Uh, What we've been able to do is really leverage technology to have a really seamless, frictionless application process, real-time decision-making, and, you know, the ability for an operator of a dispensary, let's say, who isn't over-resourced or overstaffed, um, may not have a CFO, may not have a head of finance, you know, for this individual who has to manage buying decisions, see what's going on in sales, sort of operate in an increasingly competitive environment, the last thing you want to do is add more homework onto their plate. And so our ability to leverage technology has really just made us make, allowed us to make our offering just that much more easily accessible. Okay. In your opinion, what is the current state of lending in the cannabis industry? Um, I would say currently it's probably at a two-year low. Um, and I'd say, again, Bespoke was founded in 2018. And at that time, there were very, very few debt deals that were happening. Um, over the course of 2020 and over the course of 2021, you did see some improvement on the debt financing side. A lot of that was driven by these cannabis REITs that focus on commercial real estate lending. Um, but you did see a few asset managers, institutional capital start to get comfortable with the idea of cannabis. But I think a lot of that was driven by, you know, this search for returns and search for yield, where, you know, back then, if you bought a five-year treasury, you were probably getting one to one and a half percent on annual coupon basis. A cannabis company with all these macro tailwinds supporting it and this, you know, great growth in front of it, offering significantly higher returns and yields and, you know, mid-teens and above context, that's very compelling um, for an investor. And so you did see more capital come into the space. This past year and the volatility that's hit every market has effectively repriced every risk asset lower. So, you know, any safer credit investment um, has now increased the return that it offers to investors. And investors are not just 
return focused, they're also risk adjusted return focused. And so the the challenge right now for cannabis, other than the fact that there's been no progress on the regulatory front, is the fact that there are, you know, more exciting opportunities for capital to find itself to. And what it's effectively done is drain liquidity from the space. And there wasn't it wasn't flush with liquidity to begin with. And so it's just made it that much harder for the average cannabis operator to get any sort of non-dilutive financing. What's it going to take to reverse that trend? Um, I think in time, you know, the industry itself, you know, as much as there have been challenges in the mature markets, as much as there have been, you know, issues slowing down, new states turning on, New York is a keen example. Um, You know, a lot of eyes are watching that market. I do think over time, though, we are very long-term bullish on the industry, even in these challenging periods. You know, everyone's talking about how California and Colorado have basically seen their, you know, statewide sales flatline or decrease, and you're seeing pricing come down on the wholesale level and, you know, flowing its way down to the retail side. At the end of the day, we look at it and say, even in that context, what you have to recognize is that the quantity of cannabis that's being produced and sold and purchased by consumers in the legal space has done nothing but increase over the past 18 months. And so I think what we're seeing right now is really just the next wave of maturation for these industries. You know, you have overinvestment, supply and demand rarely move in lockstep and supply overshot for a variety of reasons. Ultimately, we do see healthy demand on a product level. That does mean that companies do have to focus on being efficient. They do have to be focused on just improving their own operations as much as possible. And at the end of the day, companies that survive will have a less competitive playing field, a significantly larger consumer base, and ultimately, I think, the success and benefits of being more efficient. When it comes to some of the companies that are going to succeed, are there any specific traits that you can identify that kind of set them apart from the others that might not make it? Yeah, if, absolutely. Um, I think, but part of it isn't all that special to cannabis, I would say. I think any entrepreneur um, or any business Really, the one thing you can do is just learn from your experience and your experience can be wins and your experiences can be, you know, errors, misjudgments, miscalculations, or the world just going upside down and you having to operate in a totally new framework. What we find um, to be very frustrating is that there are a lot of businesses that will just put their head in the sand and hope that whatever the recent issue or volatility is will pass and will go back to the way things were six months ago or 12 months ago. And quite honestly, it's very hard to see a case for why that would happen. The best companies we see are the ones that are as forward thinking as possible. And it's very tough because this industry is very new. But once they see challenges, they're not hoping that they pass by themselves, but they are reacting to it and making changes. And so that kind of proactive management and definition of what the goals and objectives are, that basically appears in every other facet that you look at, whether it's the financials, whether it's at the scale of the operations, whether it's at you know the success of the brands or the products that they're making. You know, ultimately, I think that drives everything at a company. And, you know, there's a lot of other industries and companies in those industries that are learning that lesson this year alongside cannabis operators. You mentioned New York coming online. Uh, New York is stands to be a significant market as states come online. Is there going to be another state that comes online that'll have that sort of 
excitement or kind of surge that New York has because it has that sort of clout that that state holds? Yeah, I mean, really, I, more than clout. I mean, I, I grew up in the Bronx in in New York, and you know, I lived there from 1988 to 2013. It, it's not so much cloud as much as it is density. There's just a lot of people there um, right. stacked on top of each other. And, you know, it's a it's a democratic liberal leading state. And, you know, the fact that it's taken this long and, you know, a, the system is not up and running and the state isn't up and running. It's kind of shocking. But, you know, it's, it's purely from a headcount consumer demand and market size opportunity. It's going to be a juggernaut. Now, the caveat is because of the fragmented nature of cannabis, it doesn't really mean a whole lot for other markets. It does on the margin. Um, you know, one interesting unintended consequence that, you know, a state like New York legalizing is that it can impact the overall supply of flour that's in the black market, right? So suddenly a huge market just turns off, they or doesn't turn off, but they have a legal legal competitor that's taking business away from the black market. Well, that flour that was supposed to be sold in New York has to go somewhere now, right? And so the price action and, you know, how these two different factors play out, um, it, it's kind of a balance that you see. What gives me confidence in the legal market versus the black market is the fact that pretty much all the growth in the legal market is coming from new consumers, people that did not participate in the black market. And with the increasing amount of research that's done into cannabinoids, we're going to have better and more effective ways to target new consumers. And so ultimately, I do think the black market's consumer base is somewhat capped. Um, the legal market is growing. And as the legal market gets more efficient, this is really the only sort of way for the legal market to compete on price with black market operators, right? You have to be more efficient. You have to have supply get overbuilt so that you have lowered raw, raw material purchase, purchase costs. And so, you know, it's not fun. It can be very painful and challenging. But again, companies that understand the new regime and build a business model that can thrive in that will be the ones that benefit. What are your predictions for states that will end prohibition going forward, maybe the next couple? And uh, what do you foresee in terms of federal legalization? Yeah, I, I have to be quite honest. Um, you know, with 36 or so states with some form of cannabis program, I don't know that I can even name the remainder that don't have some form of legalized cannabis. Um, so I, I do think ultimately, you know, the economic incentive along with just consumer demand will ultimately result in federal legalization. We think it's likely going to take two more years before you see anything meaningful. We don't, we're not holding our breath for any sort of progress in this lean duck session that, um, you know, even Cory Booker was talking about just yesterday, mm -hmm. because it doesn't make a lot of sense. None of these legislative acts are in final form. There's a lot that needs to be determined even after they're passed. And so if you lose control of the Senate, um, if you lose control of the House, and you basically give the opposition the ability to define the market, you know, you've basically handed them a tails, they win, heads, you lose sort of situation. So I, I think what, what, basically happens is this gets tabled until the next presidential cycle, but purely from a need to track the market, need to collect taxes, uh, need to ensure the industry survives. And from the fact that it's a good tenpole issue for Democrats to rally around, I think that's probably where you see the most momentum. What would uh, federal legalization mean to Bespoke's financial model? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, from day one, the idea behind Bespoke was to be a first mover in providing debt financing to the industry with the expectation that legalization will happen and more capital will enter into the space. For us, we have a, you know, over three year track record of servicing these industries. We've gone through, you know, maybe five or six different extinction events or crises in these markets. We've built up expertise lending to borrowers in over 18 states in the U.S. Um, all of that niche expertise in terms of understanding how to look at this industry, I think, ultimately will have benefits in the sense that new capital that comes in is going to be looking for partners and originators and you know experts that know how to navigate the field and the credit risk. And you see this in other industries as well. You will have debt and credit risk takers that just have a special focus on a particular industry. And so I think what it ultimately will do is enable us to offer significantly more competitive and lower rates just because the supply of capital available will be increased significantly. And we would look to really just continue to enable that company and be that funnel for capital because it's still in a post-legalization world, we still expect it to be a regulated product. We do expect it to be a fragmented market. We don't expect that interstate commerce will be allowed. We don't know that um, it would be in the best interest of anyone, let alone the ethos of ending prohibition for cannabis. So we do think there will be enough, you know, call it hair, call it special situations that will require our experience and our expertise. And by the way, you know, it's been four years now of us just gathering, collecting and analyzing data on the space, like all of that becomes very informative, especially given the fact that the market will be fragmented. There's been an issue with cap uh, available capital in the industry uh, for a little bit now. Is part of the problem that cannabis operators aren't familiar with debt financing or some of the other options that are out there for them? No, I'd say the biggest hurdle is really just the federal illegality, because that's really what's keeping the supply of capital on the sidelines. Um, beyond that, you know, a lot of investors have mandates against participating in vice industries. Um, you know, there's a whole host of reasons. Even if you get past those concerns, you have to deal with the fact that you don't have a 15-year track record or data to analyze any of these operators. There's a huge amount of regulatory risk that you inherently assume. Now, we do think that the probability of that risk causing a problem is very low, but it still does exist, right? This is still federally illegal on a state level legal. There's a huge cash element um, in terms of transactions, which makes auditing any financials that you receive just that much harder. Um, cost of doing business is just significantly higher. The taxes are, you know, everyone's Everyone said their piece about taxes in the cannabis space. So there's no list of reasons for uh, money to stay on the sidelines. And there's really no value add for anyone sort of front running legislative change or any of these factors being addressed, except for, you know, I take operators and, and, you know, companies like Bespoke that really just see the long-term value. And as long as you do it responsibly, um, you know, any industry is financeable, especially when you have as many tailwinds supporting it as cannabis does. I read that Bespoke was on track to do about a billion dollars in lending by the end of 2022. Is that uh, still holding? Yeah, that's right. I mean, what we've seen, again, the, it's hard for any company to access capital at this point. Anyone who is using debt financing has seen their cost of financing increase, and it's just a natural function of the market. 
that's especially pronounced um, in the cannabis space. But again, the fundamental positives of consumer demand being healthy and you know the need for capital to expand and become more efficient, that keeps uh, a whole host of opportunities for us to work with really good partners and continually branch out our geographic footprint. Speaking of partners, uh, you recently partnered with Blaze. Um, could you tell me about how that partnership works? Is it essentially layaway? No, no, no. It's, um, I think it's it, the way the partnership works is it's leveraging both of our strengths um, for the benefit of dispensaries. So Blaze is a POS. You know, they have a very strong footprint across the U.S., um, but especially so in California. And so, you know, they are the main tool that these dispensaries use to run and manage their businesses. Mm-hmm. Bespoke, we've been very focused on financing and providing these operators the capital they need to make their business more efficient. So if you are a dispensary and you're trying to repurchase inventory on a regular basis, you are restricted in the amount of inventory you could purchase by either the amount of cash and capital you have on hand or by the payment terms required by your vendor or supplier. And so the partnership allows for, you know, Blaze Capital to offer financing solutions to dispensaries that use the Blaze POS platform. And it really is a B2B buy now, pay later, where it increases the purchasing power of the dispensaries so that they can go to the vendors of the brands that sell very well and start leaning in, buying in bulk, paying COD, you know, really strengthening the relationship to the point where the vendors themselves are willing to offer discounts and economic incentive for these dispensaries to you know, lock up more revenue for the vendors and work through the inventory that they have on hand. And so really, we look at it as going and enabling these dispensaries to not just improve their margins, you know, reduce their purchase costs, have the products that their their consumers will want. We actually think cannabis consumer sales in this quarter will surprise to the upside on a quantity basis. Um, and so for us, Integrating and partnering together means that now there's a one-stop shop for the dispensary user themselves. Even if they don't work with Bespoke um, or haven't ever applied for financing, within the Blaze ecosystem itself, they'll have the ability to access financing and deploy it as they want and ultimately empower them to do much better. Another caveat I'd say, starting January of next year, dispensaries are going to be responsible for paying their own excise taxes to the state of California. This is going to be a significant pressure point when it comes to cash on hand and what they could use to purchase inventory and pay their vendors. And you want that relationship to be healthy. So we think it's very compelling, very exciting, and very timely because it really will help our borrowers and our mutual clients navigate this challenging period. Because anytime the tax payment regime changes, there's a whole host of confusion and and volatility. And ultimately, it drains capital from the space and it drains cash flow from the space. And we're trying to mitigate and offset that. Why do you expect cannabis sales to surprise on the upside? Yeah, I mean, it honestly is because we believe every bearish projection we read about the U.S. consumer for the next quarter from everywhere else. Um, You know, oil prices are, I think, more impacted by geopolitical events now, obviously, than they are by inflation itself. And I don't think higher rates will cure that that's going to eat into consumers' disposable income. You know, recession talk, this has been the year of the recession. And so what we've done on our side, just in terms of looking at really what we can use to sort of project what cannabis sales will do, one thing that we've noticed is that in most mature markets, alcohol sales and cannabis sales are highly correlated with each other. And so, you know, 
you use that as a starting point and then you look and say, okay, alcohol sales typically spike in Q4. It's the holidays. Everyone's drinking. Cannabis sales also spike alongside them. If you look back in any of the years where there was a recession in Q4, so 2000, 2001, 2008, 2009, alcohol sales basically had when they were negatively correlated with what average consumer spending did. So as consumers were spending less, they were buying more alcohol or alcohol took up a bigger percentage of their budget. And so we expect those same dynamics to play out in this quarter. And effectively, the consumer will have to cut back on vacations, cut back on trips, possibly cut back on gifts during the holidays. But an eighth of weed that's never been cheaper before in their stay is probably going to be at the bottom tier of, of you know, what they're pulling back and scaling back on. Since you announced the partnership with Blaze, what has been the industry response? Yeah, so we've been running our beta since the announcement had come out. Um, you know, really, we get fantastic feedback from our borrowers and our clients. One, you know, it's just good to work with a partner that's as focused on enabling these dispensaries for success as we are. But we definitely have heard everything from, you know, it's hard for us to imagine how we would have managed our cash flow without this tool in place to this is directly enabling us to, you know, operate profitably and sustain our business and take advantage of opportunities in the market. You know, a lot of supply that hits the space does give a buyer with capital in hand a lot of power when it comes to going in and, and you know, trying to determine what the right incentive is to move that much product. So we, we think it's been a great success. We're very excited to roll out the tech integration and make this, you know, broadly accessible platform-wide in California and Massachusetts. And then we just look to really just replicate that success into other markets as well. When it comes to new clients and um, partners, what do you look for in particular? And what is the vetting process like? Yeah, I mean, um, it depends on, you know, the operator themselves, quite honestly, because like we said, for dispensary financing, it's pretty straightforward, very easy. We try to, you know, minimize the amount of work and asks. Um, for a larger, you know, vertically integrated, possibly multi-state operator, you know, those businesses are inherently much more complex. And so, you know, they also do require significantly more capital because they are operating at a significant scale. And so we've had great success working with companies that are, you know, as young as two quarters and have been operating since before adult use sales turned on. We are not, you know, agnostic and, you know, work with every different license type um, from cultivation to manufacturing, distribution down to dispensaries, along with some ancillary non-plant touching cannabis brands in the market and then ancillary service providers as well. So we really do have something that addresses every different type of operator that's to, that is, is in this space. And that's important because everyone who's even remotely involved in the space does not have access to debt financing anywhere else. And so, you know, it ultimately depends on the complexity of the applicant themselves. Three years of, of looking at every sort of org chart that's ever been made in cannabis has given us a lot of familiarity with, you know, having a much shorter time to wrap our brains around it now, especially given the maturation of the industry itself. You work with every license type. Is there any in particular that is a more difficult partnership, uh, be it from the regulations associated with it or sort of the uh, just standard operations that go along with that business? Not really. I mean, it's it's more focus. It's more driven by, you know, focus on risk, I would say, than it is about where they sit in the supply chain. And, you know, cultivators have 
taken it on the chin for the past two years, you know, ever since that supply glut started hitting the mature markets. I mean, a state like Washington, Oregon, they've been dealing with this for years. Uh, it's very tough for a cultivator to really have pricing power because of the bulk wholesale dynamics that they're dealing with. Now, what we've seen, though, again, speaking to management teams living in reality and reacting to the world um, as it is today, what we've seen this year has been a very healthy trend of a lot of cultivators basically leaving the wholesale market and launching their own brands and doing it from a much more cost competitive standpoint. You know, this is flour that ultimately would have wound up in other brands that this consumer would have bought. But because the cultivator is doing it themselves, they're able to basically go out and offer high quality cannabis at very, very competitive prices relative to previously established brands. So that kind of adaptation is something that gets us very excited just to have, you know, see the, the problem solving go live. But for us, there's no major sort of blocker or flag on any part of the market or any business model, really. It's like, ultimately, the numbers will say whether or not, you know, there's a sustainable business here or not. You had mentioned that you believe after federal legalization, there will be a still there will still be a fragmented market. What did you mean by that? Uh, I effectively that interstate commerce would not be allowed, and the reason why I would say that is because you know it really does. If you did allow for states to distribute and transport cannabis to each other, it would be advantageous for the mature markets that are dealing with a glut of supply at the expense of newer markets. So if we had free interstate commerce available today, all the excess flour in Colorado, California, Oregon, Washington, all of that would find its way to New York immediately. Now, if you live in New York and you wanted to start a cultivation, you have no economic incentive to do that now because there's no way you're going to operate efficiently enough in order to be competitive. And that's lost jobs, that's lost revenue, that's lost taxes for the state of New York. Um, ultimately, we also do think it benefits the larger MSOs more than it does you know, the small to mid-sized businesses. Um, and that, I think, would be a real missed opportunity. The end of prohibition of cannabis, which has negatively impacted basically every neighborhood in America, um, the economic benefit of turning that back, I think, should be as broadly available to any sort of entrepreneur in the US. And I think keeping a more level playing field and keeping a in-state ecosystem is just the most effective way to do that. And so really, I don't think either of these reasons are what's going to stop politicians. I think ultimately it's going to be the lost tax revenue or you know just setting exorbitantly high importation taxes and exportation taxes, um, you know, that I think ultimately will keep this to be a very regional, regional sort of business, at least for the next, you know, call it five, 10 years. You have a history in lending that spans multiple industries uh, before you came to cannabis. As cannabis has matured since you've entered it, what are some of the things that you've been impressed by? You know, the industry has sort of gone out of its way to try and, um, makes uh, social equity a big part of the maturation of the industry. What are some of the things like that, that you've found different from other industries that you've worked in? Well, I mean, I would say one thing is I think everyone who left their non-cannabis career or job to come join the cannabis industry, probably in some way, shape or form experienced the same sort of odd look from friends and family, just, you know, what are you doing? Um, and I think, that does filter out for a very 
creative and dynamic and interesting group of people. And look, there's no playbook for building an industry from the ground up. And there certainly isn't one when there's still a thriving, competitive black market that exists out there. And so, you know, I, I think it's really just on a day to day, the adaptation, the survival, the creativity that you see coming into the space, you know, just because cannabis has been legal in California for, you know, coming on four years, you're still seeing new brands, new products, new SKUs, um, just really more, more stores opening and more consumers showing up. I think watching that growth and the realization of what I think was a, decades of hard work by a lot of individuals um, to keep the prospects of this alive and to ultimately fight and win for this, that I think from a big picture standpoint is probably the coolest thing that you don't see in any other industry, right? Um, I think every other industry is more focused on there's already an existing infrastructure. Let's try to make this more efficient or strip it down or, or you know, improve it on the margin versus this is just building from the ground up, which is a totally different, different situation. Are you still getting the odd looks from friends and family? Yes. <laughs> uh, what was that like uh, in your personal circle when you decided to move into cannabis? I mean, it, it was, I, I think, I mean, it, you know, it is what it is. I, I just wanted to do it. You know, I, yeah. it just seemed like a very exciting challenge. And, you know, the reason why I was looking for that next step in my life was just because I had tried the humdrum be a cog in a much larger sort of corporate machine. And it just wasn't fulfilling. Right. And, um, you know, it was just time and place. And at the end of the day, you, know, you just have to do whatever feels good for you. And um, yeah, other, you know, other people don't get it. You know, most people don't get things until it's hindsight. And so, you know, if you let that be a filter, you're probably not going to do anything fun or interesting. Um, now that you're in the industry, do you have any, you know, impulse to get out of it at any time? Or do you think you're in it uh, for the foreseeable future? Uh, foreseeable future. They'll be dragging me out of here. <laughs> um, you know, before we get out of here, and I really appreciate you taking the time, is there anything else that you want to make sure the Cannabis Equipment News audience knows about yourself or Bespoke Financial? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, again, it's a very challenging environment out there for every business um, of every size. With cannabis, you know, even with the positives and the support that it has, it, it is a very tough environment. And so I would encourage anyone in the audience who is a licensed operator or is looking for financing to reach out to our team. You know, you can go to our website, bespokefinancial.com. And we really do try to take, you know, a consultative approach when we have these conversations. You know, there's no obligations in terms of speaking with us or applying for any of our financing products. And we're happy to walk you through what your various options are. But we look at, you know, ourselves as partners to operators and really coming in with ideas and solutions. And even if things are going fine and you may not necessarily need financing, it's always interesting to explore how it could further accelerate the growth or the success or profitability of your business. And we're just here for those conversations. And so I would invite anyone you know, who that could be helpful for to reach out to us because the more we address this need, the firmer the overall market will be. And, and you know, ultimately that success and, and you know, the dream of what this industry could be will be realized that much faster. So yeah, we just encourage everyone to reach out and learn more and, you know, enjoy the holiday season and go support your local cannabis business. <laughs> is there, you know, from that first touch point on the website to securing financing, is there like an average timeline people could expect in terms of that? Honestly, it does come down to sort of, it's, it's a, it's a two-sided application process in the sense that, you know, 
for dispensaries, it can be everything in terms of application and underwriting can happen in the blink of an eye. And then, you know, actually getting someone to sign and chasing down the right person can take a week or two weeks. But really for us, if a applicant of any size shows up and they just have their financials and the materials that we need to review, or, um, you know, their dispensary with the dispensary financing application, we can turn around very quickly these days. That hasn't been the bottleneck. Oftentimes what you find in this industry is just that, you know, there's not enough staff and support for the normal business procedures to be followed on a consistent basis. So oftentimes by the time companies come talk to us and they realize what, what they need to play catch up in, that can delay the conversation as they get their books in order. And it's always much harder the longer you wait. And so um, it really, it, it's really case by case, but we, you know, we've spoken to clients and been funding this, you know, within a matter of days and, you know, we've had other conversations that necessarily take a month or longer. From your experience, is there anything that people can do to make sure their books are in order uh, before coming to the table? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I would say there are a variety of third-party external bookkeeping, accounting um, companies that can really just do it correctly for you. And look, it's not just for financing, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you're running a business, you fundamentally need the insights that your financials will tell you as to what's working and what's not working within your business. And so I think there's two very compelling reasons and getting financing isn't the most important reason to do it. Um, so really it's, it's more just a question of, you know, the sooner you start, the easier it will be. Um, it's not fun. And, you know, not every operator has to sit down and close their own books, but it's very, very important that it's done correctly because nothing gives investors or lenders pause than hearing the story and the explanation for why everything's being restated and things were classified incorrectly. It's always much better to put your best foot forward and let your success show in the numbers because that's where it would appear. And you can be sure that the investor and or lender would definitely recognize and respond to it in a way that a conversation would not relay. Well, George, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's really been you know, insightful to learn more about the financing side of the business. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. All right. For George Manchero, co-founder and CEO of Bespoke Financial. I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast.